0: All right, so this morning we're going to continue through Matthew. We are at Jesus' last day. Jesus' last day. This morning we're going to talk about the King to the Cross. The King to the Cross. Before we do, let's pray together one more time. Lord Jesus, we think about your death, um, your impending death this morning and all that you had to endure, Lord, for our sake. God, I just, I pray that you would help us to understand and see the weight and significance and glory of what it is that you have done for us. And guard us, God, against the sin and pride and greed and stiff neckedness and short sightedness of Judas and the religious leaders. But help us, God, to see you for who you are and give us, uh, give you the glory that you would do. It's the cross in cross name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 27 as we talk about uh, the king to the cross. So this is Jesus'. Last day, and we read about the trial um, last time we talked about Jesus and Peter on trial and the, the testing and the hour of trial that they both endured uh, in different ways and with different results. Okay, and then at this point, after the Jews have satisfied themselves, uh, <laughs> getting giving themselves what they want... Uh, By uh, rounding up some false witnesses, they feel confident enough to take Jesus to Pilate, to take Jesus to Pilate. And apparently, uh, the Jews at this time were not able to enact uh, capital punishment, but the Romans were. And so they had no qualms about using the Romans to do their dirty work. And we we got a lot to learn, I think, from this uh, passage this morning. And uh, that's what I want to do. So, um, if you have a Bible, and you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. We're going to read Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 1. It says, When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Jesus, Then when Judas... His betrayer saw that Jesus was condemned. He changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver in the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful for them to be put into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the the, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even, a, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And and they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him, and put a scarlet robe on him, and, <coughs> and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put, him, put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. The Word of God. We're going to look at this passage under three headings this morning. Number one, condemning condemnation. Condemning condemnation. Number two, shocking substitution. Shocking substitution. Number three, ironic vindication. Ironic vindication. So first we're going to talk about condemning condemnation. So we have Jesus here and it's the last day of his life. And chapter 27 begins with kind of a break in the story. It kind of breaks away from Jesus a little bit. To talk about Judas. So Matthew wants us to know a little bit about how Judas' story plays out after his betrayal. So Jesus himself said um, in, in another place, he said, Have I not chosen you the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. So Jesus knew that one of his disciples would betray him, and um and still. He, you know, he 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 ministered with him. He he loved him. He loved Judas. He cared for Judas. Okay, up until the very last hour, up until his very betrayal, he was washing his feet. So we have Judas here, and Judas we know was greedy, and he sold Jesus for thirty pieces of silver. Now at this point, it says that when he realized that Jesus was condemned, he regretted it, and he brought back the blood money, the thirty pieces. Uh, uh to the chief priest and threw it in the temple now what's in it, what's remarkable here is that this is a man who apparently is very stricken with regret over what he has done now how much so we'll talk about but he does regret it and he goes and he wants to give the money back and then the the chief priest and the scribes when he so this is a moment of, of deep grief for him. And then all the religious leaders have to say is, what is that to us? You see, Judas had changed his mind, but they hadn't. And now this raises the question of whether Judas was truly repentant or not. Uh, and um, it's an interesting question. It's, it's a little speculative, but I'm inclined to say no, that he, he wasn't truly repentant here. In the, in the in the most important sense, I think he deeply regretted what he had done. But um, if you, it's important for us to understand. Uh, and the longer you live life, maybe you do understand that there's a difference between regret and repentance. You can regret something that you've done very deeply, but not be repentant of it. Just like when I when I tell my when I when my kids get in trouble, they may regret that they got they may regret the consequences of their decision, but they not Might not be repentant; it might not have a a truly changed heart. Hebrews talks about how Esau deeply regretted selling his birthright to Jacob for a meal, but he said that. But he goes on to say that no, there was no uh, uh, repentance. He could not find repentance, even though he sought it with tears. The apostle Paul talks about a distinction between godly grief and worldly. That godly grief leads to repentance, but worldly grief doesn't. Judas' suicide is a bad sign because self-murder doesn't really point us to a spiritually sensitive heart. And elsewhere, Jesus, speaking of Judas, said it would be better for that man if he had not been born. So I don't think we have a lot of evidence to say that Judas's repentance is sincere to the point that he was forgiven of what he had done. There must be genuine repentance and genuine faith All Judas could muster up was putting himself out of his misery. So Judas serves as a warning for us. And so does the religious leaders. They didn't have the religious leaders as as hard-hearted as Judas was, the religious leaders were even worse off. They didn't even have a sliver of compassion for a man who was in the deepest regret of his life. And at the same time, these men... Are guilty of condemning an innocent man to death. And what's interesting, and we've pointed out this before, and this seems to be something of a theme in Matthew, but of the, of the, of the religious leaders' scrupulousness to their little rules, even while committing grievous evil, right? So the, the blood money is there, and, and then they say, well, we can't, we can't put this back into the temple treasury, so there's your rule, right? So they're, and so, and so they buy the potter's field with it. So they're keeping this little rule while at the same time they're murdering an innocent man. It's kind of ironic. And it's the deadly aspect of sin and how dangerous sin is to the human heart that you can be so blinded to your sin that you can actually imagine yourself virtuous and scrupulous while at the same time committing great evil. And you know, we do this, and this is very dangerous, is that when we're sinning in one area of life, we, we try to make up for it by, by being scrupulous or righteous or honest in these other areas of life, and we kind of make ourselves feel better and make ourselves justified by saying, well, I'm doing fine over here, so we don't have to address the issue over here. Apparently, the appropriate way that such money could be used was for a public service, and so they brought a field that could be used as a, public, uh, as a burial place for... Um, Foreigners or strangers—the word could actually, word could mean either one. Now, Acts seems to record that Judas died in that field, okay, which is which is kind of interesting, um, and uh, I think maybe slightly symbolic of Judas's uh, situation there—that the place that was bu- uh, set apart for a burial place for foreigners and strangers is where Judas would die. And so I think it may be a pointer to the fact that Judas was a stranger and foreigner to the promises of God. But what is important to Matthew in this whole account, and what has been important throughout the whole book of Matthew, and I think one of the biggest themes that Matthew wants us to walk away from, is that how this account is a fulfillment of Scripture. Because once again, as he does throughout the whole book, he quotes Scripture. Because Matthew is very keen on getting his readers to understand and getting us to understand that nothing happened to Jesus by accident. It was all part of the plan of God, even his betrayal, down to the dollar for which Jesus was betrayed. He said this was was fulfilled what had happened, uh, what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying they took 30 pieces of silver, the price on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Now, some of Matthew's citations are really difficult to to follow and to unravel how he's how he's using them, and that's a very complex area of scholarship. And tomes and tomes have been written about that. It actually, what he quotes, sounds most like Zechariah chapter eleven. And in Zechariah eleven, Zechariah is commanded to become a shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. And he gets rid of the bad shepherd, but in the end, it turns out that the flock hates him. And this is this is what it says in Zechariah eleven ten and following. It says, I took my staff favor and I broke it, annulling the covenant that I had made with all the peoples. So it was annulled on that day. And the sheep traders who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages, 30 pieces of silver. And then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter. The lordly price by at which I was priced by them. So I took the thirty pieces of silver and threw them to into the house of the Lord to the potter. So the point in the Zechariah passage is that um uh, that Israel Zechariah was he was stepping in the place of the bad shepherds, which represents the evil, wicked leaders of Israel. Okay? And so Zechariah is, is stepping into this place to be a shepherd of the sheep okay and the, the the staff being broken okay it, it it says God says it's the covenant that had made with the people and so this passage is speaking about about Israel and its wicked leaders and the, the flock that is doomed to slaughter okay and the, and the covenant that God is breaking essentially the covenant that Israel had broken with God and God is breaking it with them the covenant uh, to be his people and, and for them to be his God Okay, for him to be their God. Okay, and so it's a picture of judgment on the nation of Israel. And this is the image that is being evoked here. The problem with that is that um, Matthew doesn't cite Zechariah. He cites Jeremiah. And so and so this has concerned some people, you know, is there an error in the Bible and stuff like that? But most likely what is happening is that what he has done is he has conflated He has kind of, he he has put two passages together. The other passage is from Jeremiah 19. And if you read Jeremiah 19, it has Jeremiah condemning Judah and Jerusalem uh, for, you know, for multiple things. But one thing is that they have filled the place with innocent blood. And then Jeremiah also speaks of how there will be a place outside the city to become a burial place for the condemned of Israel. So what does all that mean? It means this is that Matthew has kind of put these two passages together in his mind. Okay, he cites Jeremiah, even though it comes from Jeremiah and Zechariah. But the point is that he wants us to see that the that the selling of Jesus for thirty pieces of silver was not an accident. It was a it's a it's a it was prophesied in the Old Testament being fulfilled in Jesus' day about um the servant of the Lord or prophet being priced at thirty pieces of silver in judgment of Israel's wicked leaders and the people who follow them who would ultimately be judged by God and the covenant broken with them (coughs) and ultimately a new covenant being made. And so, what, um, and so I've called this point condemning condemnation. Now what does that mean? Well, the religious leaders have condemned Jesus. They've condemned him to death. And, what, what Jesus is doing, what Matthew is telling us through these fulfillment passages, is he's saying Israel is going to be condemned for the way they condemned Jesus. That's what, he's, that's what he's telling us. And he's telling us that this wasn't an accident. It was all according to the plan of God. And for us, what it is, is it's a warning. It's a warning for us to guard ourselves against the hard-heartedness of Israel. If you, you you can't continue to just sit there and watch God work in your midst and in your life and bless you and then just ignore it and reject Him over and over again and just keep doing things the way you want to do and think it's going to be okay. Because it's not. God is washing, and God is patient. He's patient. But the time of patience would be up, just as the time of patience was eventually up for the Jews. God would wait another 40 years after the death of Jesus before he would bring cataclysmic judgment upon Israel through the destruction of Jerusalem. And In that 40 years, we know that what? That the gospel was preached by the apostle, and that many Jews got saved. But a lot of them didn't. A lot of them still rejected Jesus and received their condemnation. So number one, condemning condemnation. Number two, shocking substitution. Shocking substitution. So when they hand Jesus over to Pilate, okay, Pilate questions him, but Jesus, again, gives him no answer, okay? Not even to a single charge. And at the feast, it says that Pilate was accustomed to release to them a prisoner And there was a prisoner called Barabbas who was a robber, probably better translated, insurrectionist. Okay? Now, Pilate tries to spare Jesus, okay, by uh, offering him up instead of Barabbas, but the crowd incited by the leaders wouldn't have it. Okay? And And so they say Barabbas, and then what should they do with Jesus? They say, let him be crucified. Okay? And so they do that, and... Pilate washes his hands of the whole deal, has Jesus scourged, and then is led off to be crucified. So what is happening here? What is happening here? The Jews apparently couldn't execute capital punishment, so what do they do? They take him to Pilate, who can, and they accuse him of claiming to be a king. Now, now, now in a sense, that's true, that, that Jesus is a king. I mean, it is not just in a sense. He is a king. Okay? But what they know and what the Jews know is that Pilate is not going to be interested in their religious disputes. But what Pilate will be interested in is if there's someone who's trying to stir up an insurrection against the Roman government. So these, these, these guys, are, are they have planned this out very carefully. They know what they're doing, and they're trying to manipulate Pilate into doing what they want him to do. But in the face of all his accusations... Jesus, once again, has nothing to say, as we talked about before. Isaiah 53, 7 says, He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus uh, didn't defend himself. Now, it was the Romans' custom that at Passover, that they would release a prisoner of their choosing. Uh, Maybe as a sign of goodwill, you know, try to appease them since they were kind of, you know, oppressing them. All right. Now, they had this prisoner named Barabbas. And again, it's probably better translated insurrectionist rather than robber. So we know that there were people at this time, Jews well, or no, no Jew liked Roman rule. But there are some Jews called zealots who were ready and willing to exercise violence against the Roman government. And so Barabbas is probably one of these people who has a, incited a, a rebellion, an insurrection, at some point, and killed some people, okay, and now is arrested. Okay, so we, so you got to think about from the perspective of the people. Even if every Jew wasn't a zealot per se, most of them, all of them, didn't like Roman rule, and so they were probably sympathetic to the zealots who wanted to cast off the, the Roman oppressor, right? So we think, we might think of Barabbas as this, you know really cruel, nasty, evil person. Maybe he was, I don't know. But the truth is, is that most likely the crowd that was there before Pilate that day came to demand Barabbas' release. Knowing that Pilate did this at the Passover, they came to ask Barabbas to be released because probably to many of them, he was maybe a national hero even because he was fighting against the evil Romans. Okay, so we think of that kind of like a bad way, but that's probably why they were there is to ask that Barabbas be released but when the crowd shows up, they're surprised to find that there's not one prisoner, but two. Because, because what? Because this midnight court, you know, mock trial happened to Jesus in the middle of the night in secret. Nobody knew what was happening, but they woke up the next morning and now Jesus is in custody too. So now the mob who was there to ask for Barabbas has showed up and now they have a decision to make. Am I going to ask for Jesus to be released or we're we going to ask for Uh, Barabbas to be released. Okay? And so, they have a decision to make. Now, in light of all that's happening here, um, Pilate doesn't like what's, he doesn't like what's happening. Okay? He believes Jesus is innocent. He perceives that they delivered him up out of jealousy. So we know people don't change. Things have been happening the same way for thousands of years, right? Delivered him up out of jealousy. And not only that, but his wife has a dream, which is crazy. His wife has a dream and tells him. Don't mess with that man. He's a righteous man. I've suffered much because of him on account of a dream. So now, now think about what's happening in this story. And I think Matthew wants us to see the irony here. Judas has said Jesus was innocent. Pilate thinks Jesus is innocent. Pilate's wife thinks Jesus is innocent. The only people who thinks Jesus is innocent are the Jews. The Jewish leaders in the Jewish crowd. That's amazing. It's remarkable. Pilate and his wife are Gentiles. Okay? And they know that Jesus is innocent. And so, hoping to spare Jesus, Pilate presents him as an alternative to Barabbas. But the leaders know how to incite this crowd here, this mob, and they all yell out, "Crucify him! Crucify him!" And I heard all of you gasp because you gasp because you understand the weight. I think of the, probably one of the most frightening verses in all the Bible when the crowd says, "His blood be on us and on our children." They knew they. <sighs> it was. It was. Their blood. His blood was on them and their children. And they, they, they called it upon themselves. Jesus, when, uh, I think it's in Luke, when he wept over Jerusalem, you know, the, he said, the city that kills the prophets and stone those who were sent to it, how I would have gathered you uh, under my wings as, as, a, as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. And then he goes on to say, because you did not know the time of your visitation. They didn't know it. But what is remarkable here about this story is this. We have Barabbas, and what is Barabbas? <laughs> yeah. He's an insurrectionist, right? He's a he's a criminal. He's a rebel. He's a murderer. Right? And what happens to Barabbas? He gets set free. Why? Because Jesus gets condemned. What is this? It's a shocking substitution. It's God, in a way that only God can, telling us through a real life parable what Jesus came to do. Jesus, an innocent man, came to be condemned so that guilty people could be set free. In the first one Was Barabbas. So, guess what? In this story, we aren't Jesus. We're Barabbas. Jesus said, if you've ever hated somebody in your heart, you're a murderer. We're murderers. Barabbas was a rebel. The Bible says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What is sin? It's bucking, it's rebelling against God's loving authority. We're all rebels. We're all murderers. We're all Barabbas. Jesus, the innocent one, came so that guilty people like you and me could be set free. It's a shocking substitution, and it's a it's, it's a lived out, enacted parable right there that God did just to show us what Jesus came to do: condemning condemnation, shocking substitution, and finally, number three, ironic vindication. Ironic vindication. Jesus is condemned, and the soldiers take him. And we get a a sense here of how the the Romans felt about the Jews. They didn't really care about him a whole lot. The whole battalion came. They stripped Jesus and put a scarlet robe on him. And they twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they knelt before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, king of the Jews! They spit on him and took a reed and struck him, took the reed and struck him on the head. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, put on his own clothes on him, and led him away to crucify him. So, I don't know if it still is. At one time, The Passion of the Christ was the largest grossing rated R movie ever in history. It was rated R not because, you know, language or anything bad like that, but just because of the violence that it depicted. You've never seen it. I've encouraged you to see it because you don't know how cruel Roman scourging and crucifixion is until you've seen it. We we can't imagine treating people like this today. The Passion of the Christ, isn't it? That's what it's called Passion of the Christ. Mel Gibson. So, you know, y'all are familiar with it? You know, they probably scourged him with what's called a eye tails a leather whip with several leather straps with bone or metal tied at the end, so it basically just rip your back to shreds. Uh, A number of people didn't even survive the scourging, which probably explains why Jesus died so quickly, and they were surprised how quickly he died on the cross because he probably lost a lot of blood from being scourged. And so they scourged him, and they put him on a robe and put a reed in his hand and put a crown of thorns on his head. And said, Hail, King of the Jews. Now, again, this is interesting because these are the Romans here. All right? so, so I just want you to think about how Matthew is trying to tell us that nothing happens to Jesus by accident. Just like nothing happens to you by accident, by the way. Even down to the tiniest details. Down to the fact that a man named Barabbas would be released. Down to the fact that he would be scourged. Down to the fact that they would mock him the way that they did. I think it's all part of the plan of God because God wants to tell us something. God tells us things through history. God tells us things through the life of Jesus. God tells us things through the situations that we encounter in our lives. The Romans robed Jesus and put a reed in his hand and put a crown on his head. They mocked him for being a king. But what what is God trying to say? The Romans were doing more than they understood because God was trying to say, that's my son and he is a king. And you don't even understand what you're doing, but you're doing more than you know. Because my son, right before his death, right before his death, you are robing him and crying him as a king because that's what he's about to become. You see, they mocked him. They, they, They scourged him. They spit on him. They railed at him. Right? But see, that's the whole point, isn't it? Because that's the kind of king that Jesus came to become. He came to be a a king who, who Philippians says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. The reason why Jesus is so great is because he doesn't demand the privileges of his greatness. But he's willing to lay his greatness and his authority down in order to serve those that he loves. And that's what true greatness means: is laying down your rights and privileges and authorities to serve people that you love. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus is a king, a greater king than they could ever realize. But that's the kind of king that he was—a king that didn't come and demand his rights, but a king, a king that denied himself. And it's because he made him, he put himself in the lowest place. The Bible says that God raised him to the and gave him the name that is above every name. That the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is the king. The crown of thorns is now a crown of gold. The scarlet robe is now a garment of white linen. The reed in his hand is now a scepter of iron with which he rules the nation. And the Bible says he's going to come back one day, and a sword is going to come out of his mouth, with which he will strike down the nations. Why? Because at his death and resurrection, Jesus told us, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus is the king. The Romans didn't know it, the Jews didn't know it but Jesus did. And so he laid down his life for us. So this, Jesus is showing us that the the path to kingship in the economy of God is not being served, but serving others and giving his life as a ransom for me. And Jesus is crown of thorns turned into a crown of gold. And what Jesus is telling us what Jesus is telling us is that if we're going to follow him if we're going to follow him if we want that crown of gold we've got to be willing to wear the crown of thorns. The Romans didn't understand what they were doing but we do. They missed it, but we better not. There is no greater crown to wear than the crown of thorns because it's Jesus' crown. So what do we see this morning? Condemning condemnation, shocking substitution, ironic vindication. Will we wear the crown with Jesus? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you gave yourself as a substitute, an innocent, the innocent for the guilty, that we might be set free. And Lord, we can't fathom what you endured there. We can't fathom what you endured on the cross. Not just physically, Lord, but the forsakenness that you experience being the wrath of God due our sins being poured out on you, we can't fathom, But we thank you. We thank you. We're so grateful. And Father, I pray that you would help us to take heart, to take courage, to follow in your steps, Lord Jesus. To be willing to, to wear the crown of thorns so that one day with you we may wear the crown of gold. Help us, Lord. Give us courage. Give us strength. Guard us from fear. Guard us from entitlement. Guard us from thinking that it's things in this world that matter most. But help us, Lord, to to take your example, God, to heart. That those who reign in the next world are those who serve others in this world. So God, help us to love one another. Help us to serve. Help us to make sacrifices of love. Help us to not demand ourselves, but deny ourselves to follow you. And Lord Jesus, maybe there's somebody listening this morning, and by your Spirit, you've just impressed upon them that that is the true way to live. Not demanding ourselves, but denying ourselves to live for something greater than ourselves. Maybe for the first time this morning they see it. Oh Lord, I pray that they would call on you this morning and be saved. Let it be, oh Lord, we pray in Jesus' name.